I remember it still quite vividly. I remember his car. Um, I remember almost his smell. I remember what he looked like and I thought I could actually see myself in you in certain ways. And it's a really powerful memory to have. But I also knew the darker side. Hi everyone, my name is Inharad George Carey and you're listening to Daddy Issues, a podcast dedicated to confronting fatherlessness, but more specifically, fatherlessness in successful people. I want this podcast to prove that regardless of whatever daddy issues you may possess, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Fatherlessness affects so very many of us, and so it's time to start listening to each other's stories and opening up this topic as one that needs to be recognized, heard, and confronted. In today's episode, I am talking to Marvin Harrison. On the 17th of June 2018, Father's Day in the UK, Marvin, who by day is an advertising executive from London, decided to create a WhatsApp group for all the positive black fathers he knew, at the time this was 23, to wish them a happy Father's Day, thank you and congratulations for their positive influence in their child's lives and changing the perception of black men for the better. This then progressed to Marvin founding Dope Black Dads, a safe space in which a group of black dads based in London, New York and South Africa could come together and provide a progressive discussion around the male parenting experience, discussing the highs and lows of what it means to be a black father in today's society. A mere four months later, the group took a leap and the Dope Black Dads podcast was born. This allowed for a much more expansive yet still personal medium to represent the voice of black fathers on a wide range of topics and give people a greater understanding of a black father's narrative looking at parenting, marriage, cohabiting, mental health, physical health, politics, masculinity and much, much more. The podcast has been featured on BBC One Extra and BBC Sounds and is currently touring the UK providing Q&As for parents of all backgrounds. In the words of Marvin himself, just seeing and hearing people I've known all of my adult life talk openly about marriage, relationships and parenting has shown we as men never really speak to each other fully at all. Wow, there is so much to cover in this episode. So Marvin, first of all, welcome to Daddy Issues and thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I've become such a fan of your mm, podcast thank that you. it's actually been a gift and a curse right. at the same time. <laughs> because as an interviewer, my notes for you are endless. You address and dissect and discuss so much that is so relevant, not just to this podcast, but to life right now and for everyone, talking so insightfully and articulately about masculinity, toxic masculinity, gender roles, politics, fathers, black fathers, white fathers, what it is to be a man, a black man, a white man, the list goes on. But I've decided my focus needs to be on you and your story and how you got here. So how you got to being an advocate and a voice and an inspiration, not just to black fathers, but to all fathers, to all men, to all boys, to all women and to all girls, because you are a voice for them too. Wow. So I want to learn more about the man behind what is going to be the global phenomenon that is the Date Black Dads. So hello, Marvin. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you? That is the best intro I've ever had. How do I pocket that and then somehow <laughs> present that in front of my wife and children and my mum? I'll send that to you. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. It's like I'm walking into a room and just play this. This is who's arriving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is me, by the way. This is who you married. <laughs> so, Marvin, I usually just go as much as I can in chronological order and then mm. see where we go from there. So what I'd love to do, even though I know bits about your life for yeah. your podcast, especially your most recent one, What It Is To Be A Man. Right. which I loved. Mm. I was literally, oh my gosh, I was I was on a run, mm. which I listen to most of my podcasts doing something because I'm so <laughs> hyper, I need to do something as well as listen. <laughs> and I was on a run and literally it was like the worst run and the best run I've ever had because I kept stopping mm. every two seconds. I thought I could just listen to it yeah. and then just retain that information. But I wanted to quote so much that you'd said right. and I wanted to write it down and I wanted to, and then I, wow. questions would come into my head that I wanted to ask you. Right. Um, but I'm going to get there eventually. We're going to go in like different webs and branches because there's so much I want to yeah, discuss yeah. with you. And also to the listener right now, 
what I was telling Marvin earlier is, thank goodness he's got so much on the Dope Black Dad podcast into the ether already mm. that loads of things that we will not have a time to even, we'll just brush or surface on today or not even be able to mention. Yes. Um, is already out there. Yes. So you've got you've got Marvin's wisdom already <laughs> out there for you to listen to, and you really need to. You have me blushing today. I feel like I'm. I feel <laughs> I feel like a tiny boy just being. I know, but I'm like totally just yeah. I just bowled over by your podcast and Thank you. your like wisdom. Anyway, so childhood, mm-hmm. take me back, set the scene. Yeah, so I was uh, born in Hackney, 1984, um, raised in. Shoreditch. It's a very different Shoreditch to the Shoreditch that we now know and love. Right, um, yeah. That version of Shoreditch was a National Front headquarters, um, also very British working class. Mm-hmm. V Day was a huge deal, so everybody would celebrate that. You'd have a, you'd have tables and chairs in the middle of the street. They'll shut roads off, and there'll be jelly and uh, ice cream oh. and being served with roly poly, and it was very British, yeah. um, quintessentially so. Victoria sponges. Um, and so I started the first three years um, in, in Shoreditch. Then I moved in with my grandmother, um, with my mum as well. Um, and we all, me, my brother, my sister and my mum lived in that house uh, for maybe another four years. And then I moved to Short uh, to Dalston, mm-hmm. where I was raised on a, it wasn't a state, but it wasn't a typical estate. Our estate was very... Um, family oriented um, uh, again very British um, we were one of the f- maybe two or three black families on the estate mm-hmm. um, my mum was a single mother but we never really knew that until maybe a lot later on when my dad uh, attempted to come on the scene right, yeah. because she was just one of those mums who looked after everything mm. you never realised that there was a thing missing because she covered all the bases there was you know always food on the table she would make all the sacrifices um, really strong individual very present um, very loving as well um, mm. which is something that um, I think over time, your your memory may have erased some of the things that she used, she used to do. Um, and more recently, I've been back in tune with just how many things she did for me. So um, I was very lucky. Me and my older brother and my sister, um, for the first six years of my life, were just us three, the three musketeers. Um, after six years, my little sister joined us. Um, and to be honest, the, the, the kind of big thing was is that my family was never just me, my mum, my brothers and sisters. It was always the aunts. Um, that would play a role. And so I've always grown up with the lens of um, women, specifically black women, were um, the center of family. They were uh, incredibly multifaceted. They were um, the whole family structure to me. Um, Some of my grand, my aunts, my mum, I've only ever known strong women. Um, And I think that kind of played out to be very, played out in my favor because I think my lens, my personal experience has always been sympathetic to to women and and always been inclusive of women um it's all i've ever known and so i think as time has gone on that that understanding i haven't had to do a, a huge reconstruction of my understanding to survive in 2019 like yeah, yeah. potentially some men have um but i feel like i was very fortunate i feel like growing up in a community family-led estate with a really tight-knit immediate family uh, and a supportive wider family gave me a lot of security to survive and navigate the things that many people probably fall down on i.e um youth violence and gang culture which was around my area but there was always something that never i never really had the heart to go all the way through with some of the things that were going on the mm. worst parts of it um and i i always would go home and i'd always tell my mum what had happened she always created a space for me to be able to say those things um and i think that meant our relationship was um, stronger but it also just meant i would go home yeah. I wouldn't feel like I couldn't come back and be like, mom, this is what happened. Yeah. I'm going to stay at home for a couple of days because I don't feel like I want to go out because I'm not sure if I feel safe. What's the difference? What do you think then was the, because for the, for the guys who don't do that mm. with their mums, but their mums could still be doing, you know, the same kind of job that your mum's doing. Do you think, what do you think that difference? There, there, there is an element of luck. There's an element of skill in the parenting. And so... Um, many parents who may have had a great relationship with their child, their child could then be lost to chance, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's loads of joint enterprise cases where you just being there meant that you are a part of the crime. Mm. Um, There were many things that I was a witness to, but never participant of. And under that law, I would have probably been arrested as well. So it is very much chance. um, And I'm very, very fortunate to have navigated those 
four or five years, particularly, it's high. It's a very traumatic time. There's mm. a lot of people dying at that time, specifically in Hackney. There was a lot of gun crime. That was the crime of choice. Uh, there was knife crime, but it was secondary. Um, and it was just lots of fights. It was constantly fighting for survival. I think that's um, a really core part of it. And I think, actually, I watched Top Boy, the first two episodes. Mm. Um, I remember us talking about this before. Yeah, and the first two episodes really triggered me. Yeah, uh, It was so beautifully laid out, the balance of love from home, but still something outside luring you in. Mm. The need and want to make money um, so that you can support your family or just have basic things for yourself. Um you could easily get tied into it. I just knew I was never able to bring crime to my mum's house. Like you just, there was no way you'd be able to do that and survive. So, um, and the thing is, even the idea of surviving is that, of course, I would have been fine. But I, I never wanted that shame to, uh, to be brought to my mum's house. And yeah. I think that kept a line of, I'm not coming to get involved in that. And also that I remember hearing on this is me going back to one of your podcast episodes already. But you said something about being always on there was the right and the wrong side and you always found yourself you did stay on that right side yeah so i think that comes down to conviction and what type of heart you have mm. and and i think this is one of the key things when you have love in your home you know love and then you're you don't run from it you actually run towards it and so i would find that my behavior would always lead me to the right side of things because i enjoyed the warm feeling of being loved rather than feared or um uh or pushing away from uh, an environment. I never felt like I was alone when I was outside of my house. I knew I could go home and that was a huge, huge difference to yeah. potentially some of the other children on my A real safety, safety blanket. Yeah. And with your episode, What It Is To Be A Man, mm. there is a moment that you don't tell your mum about something. Yes. And what I found so beautiful is it is the first time that you consciously realised that you had were becoming a man mm. so can you tell us about that yeah so um i was at school <clears throat> so my school was in islington and i i lived in hackney and uh a lot of kids in hackney got who i've got kicked out of hackney schools or the school would close down they got moved over into my school so halfway through my academic um life um our school went from being moderate to one of the worst schools because all the kids that got kicked out from Hackney schools were arriving there and they were taking them in. And so um, within that, there was a lot more youth violence. I was fortunate that some of them I knew from my area. So I was insulated to a degree. Mm. Um, but one guy, um, I never forget one day in school, he just said he was going to stab me. And he was out known. Out the blue? Well, I think we might have been. Had a scuffle or something. It might have been a scuffle. It may have just been something as basic as like insulting each other's mothers or something particularly <laughs> yeah. simplistic as I such. I remember that insult. It looked like, your mum. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and that was like the most crushing thing you could say. Yeah. It was like oh. a sonnet of some sort. But um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it was um, quite a simple insult, but it was a, a very basic exchange that resulted in him saying that he was going to um, stab me. And in my mind, I felt like there was a possibility of that being so. Um, and so I just remember I, I tried to navigate a way home and I, I thought I'm either going to face this guy head on mm. um, and either cause him damage before he causes me. Uh, am I going to face him and hope um, that somewhere in the gods that someone looks out for me and, and stops it? Or am I going to uh, go the long way home um, uh, and, and, and try to get home without inter uh, interacting with him? So I went the long way home and I basically took a two-hour detour to my house yeah. trying to avoid the direct route because he lived a little bit further than I did but you have to pass my area to get there so I feel like he didn't see me and then went to my area to try to catch me and so after I did loads of zigzagging through all parts of Islington I finally arrived back in to my area and he was there at the edge of my area waiting for me so I thought I'd done it and I hadn't and then um him and another guy were like we need to sort this today and so I got marched to the other end of my estate and then it was like right you're not allowed to stab him this is what the other guy was saying to the guy who says he's going to stab me which is thankful to him yeah. you're not allowed to stab him but we're going to fight you, you, you two are going to fight it out and whoever wins that's where it ends because you're both my friends so this is the the, the mediator fantastic I'm, yeah. I'm very grateful to him <laughs> um, and then we had a fight and I think I got the better of him but then um, I got home and I was just so happy to be alive and yeah. so happy to be um on past that hurdle um that i didn't really want to tell my mom because it was fixed it was sorted mm. and but then i also had to explain where i was for three hours so i was like i played football 
And then my mum obviously was upset because that's not what we did. We came straight home. That's my big thing for my mum. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure I got in trouble from that. And, you know, that's probably the first time, I wouldn't say it was the first time I lied. I've definitely mistold <laughs> truths before. But I think that's the first time I did something consciously aware of what the consequences were all the way through. I didn't tell her because I want, didn't want to explain that to her because it sounds so wild. I wasn't sure what she would do as a result. Yeah. And in my mind, I had fixed it. Yeah. And at that point, I felt like a man because I had solved my own problem without having to defer to my mum. But were you at the time conscious of that feeling, I am now a man or I have just done something that a man does? Not, not the magnitude of it. I think I, I was just aware and pleased that it had gone away. So mm. it was just relief because one of the things about traumatic experiences, anyone that's been through one, is that you feel it and it's present in your body. Mm. So there'll be a tingle or there will be an overriding of emotion that comes through you and it stays with you. And now anytime you have that feeling, you relive every time you felt that thing. And it wasn't until upon reflection that I realised that from that point, I became less dependent on my mum for solutions and I was comfortable doing things in my own um my own understanding mm. um and then there was trust yourself yeah just trust trusting my instincts knowing my mum's voice and having it in my head which it was um in terms of just make sure that make it's like kind of like make sure you don't die mm. make sure you don't bring police to my house yeah <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. that's the, the two cardinal rules yeah 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 <laughs> and so within that my solution avoided those two things so yeah. you feel like you've accomplished something yeah. uh, in a weird way yeah and going back to so you mentioned that that uh, that that traumatic the moment with the boy threatening to stab mm. you that that was um potentially some sort of trigger mm. what do you mean by that was that to do with your father no, so I think the trigger is about being under siege. Okay. And I think uh, you develop emotional intelligence. So beating in my house or hitting in my house was normal. It's a way of controlling four kids with strong personalities from age 10 to 6. Mm -hmm. So um, it became a method of how we were disciplined mm -hmm. and i think i became very wise to when the mood was shifting in my house mm -hmm. and knowing when it could be coming mm -hmm. and i think to put it into context it's not you're not doing nothing and you're being hit you've done something and instead of them being my mum talking for the hundredth time do not do that mm -hmm. she just got to a point of where it was like a clip round the head yeah. but you would now have the intelligence of when that's coming because you know what you've done you know what your mom's going to say mm -hmm. and you can feel the movement of the wind shifting, the you physics, really can, yeah. <laughs> the physics shifting. And then you just, you just cover your neck and you cover yourself. You make yourself small, you get out of the way. And that, that feeling is again, something that probably relives in you when you're, um, when someone says, I'm going to stab you, mm -hmm. you, you become very aware of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. There's like a sixth sense. There's like a, a mind's eye that tells you where you need to be, where you need to go, how to escape. Um, and it lives in you. It lives in me now. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I see too much movement in a particular way, all my senses from growing up around so, so much violence tells you that something needs to be done. And I know to move away. I'm very cautious of my surroundings. Mm -hmm. So now take me to mm. your dad. So um, before this, shortly before this incident of where I was um, uh, approached with a knife, um, I my dad came back into the picture, and I was, think I would have been nine, ten. Can I quickly ask something? Yes. So going back to when you were three, mm. you lived somewhere before you moved somewhere with your grandmother and mother. Yes. Was that? A home with your father and your mother. Yes. Yeah, so I, my mum was with my father until I was one and a half. And then she left him and went to go live with my gran. Okay. Um, and that was there for another year and a half. Why and did so, she leave him? So I think their their relationship started very young. Mm -hmm. So she was potentially 15, 16 when they first started seeing each other. Um, they had had three, three kids. Um, and I think he was very abusive. And... Physically, physically, emotionally, I think I think he. There isn't really a justification. Mm -hmm. He wasn't one of those people that lived necessarily an archetype of a of a destructive childhood, mm -hmm. from what I understand. Um, and I think he there's 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 an element of a cultural thing where men of that era controlled women in a particular way. Mm -hmm. There's an element of somebody who is extremely unhappy, extremely. Um, I think the challenge is, is that I stopped asking questions about my dad when I got enough insight mm 
And then when I experienced him, I stopped asking. Since then, I've drip fed. I've been drip fed information about him um, by my brothers and sisters, by my mum. But there's a part of me that never really needed that closure. Because when I met him when I was nine, we met the first time and he, I think he might have arrived at our door, you know, trying to negotiate to see us. And um, he wanted us to know his other children. I think that was the catalyst. What, how many, do you, are you the youngest of? Um, no, my, my dad would, my dad tried to win awards for how many children he could create um, <laughs> in the 80s. So there, I, th- I feel like I consciously know of like seven, eight. I wouldn't be surprised if it's over 10. Right, right. I, I actually don't f- fully know, which is a, another thing to unpack. But um, but within your own direct family, you oh, are... there's three of us. And your youngest. My, my youngest is with uh, another another man, so a much nicer man. Oh, I see, I see, <laughs> yeah. down the line. I only, I only wondered that because you said you were dripped information from them, so I thought maybe they knew him more. Right, yeah. So they, they knew him more. They remember some of the things that happened um, and they have stronger memories of it. I have no memories at all. Yeah, age three, I, I yeah. just know... Um, that it wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that is conscious. And my mum's always been very open, but I suppose there's a piece of me that would like to be able to answer these questions in a fully informed way. Mm. But I, I also don't believe the answer will inform my outlook in any way mm-hmm. because I haven't really allowed that to shape me because, as I said earlier, my mum played such an active role that when I consider my dad's impact where he had the strongest impact is in his absence. That has become uh, the gift that he gave. Because look, I, I think we have, to be completely honest, not every man is equipped to be a father. Mm-hmm. And I think quite often we place this uh, pressure on people to be immaculate fathers. And now there's a pressure of the men who have built their careers based on the old norms of you are the breadwinner, you must be the CEO. Mm. So every man's chased this dream. And then as they've got that, they're like, and you need to be an amazing father too. You can't just be an absent weekend father that pays. You need to actually be there. Mm. And so nobody really asks men, how do they cope with that balance? Mm. This is not to do with my father. This is in general. And so I, I've, I've come to peace with not every man should, needed to have been an active father. I feel like his role was to bring me here Mm-hmm. present me who he really was which is at nine years old and then at times he's acted as fuel um for my curiosity to how i parent myself mm-hmm. i think those are the three catalysts and yeah. all of them are um outside of um his presence and i think it's also so true that you um everything that well we'll get into this but even you know dope black dads and then dope black dads podcast mm that's all been fueled from this absence with your father, with mm. your own father and that experience, which now you're helping a lot of other people with yes. and creating and then going off branches for loads of different things. But it's that even, I think, your searching that I know you did as a teenager and that escapism and, you know, we'll get to your teens where you, you know, would go on trips the whole time and mm. running away from something and that thing and all yourself and that identity crisis and all that stuff. And that often is linked to in my experience with mm. you know this absent or strained relationship with the father mm. and um he gave you that that kind of push to really understand yourself yeah and i think that that so often you know might not have might not have been something which um you would have pushed so strongly or explored so within yourself had that yeah. not been the case and even yourself as a dad i even wrote this down earlier um in my notes thinking you know your view as a father now mm. wouldn't be so you wouldn't be so conscious about how you then go about being a dad had maybe you not had that traumatic experience with your dad so there is yeah. a gift a gift sometimes in in is that it's that dark cloud silver lining yeah. moment so i i think um one of the things that i've learned in the last year is the best way to learn about yourself and develop who you are is in a safe environment. And I think it's it's healthy to understand how a lack or shame or a wound um, propels you and gives you drive for an outcome. And I think that's um, a better way to use that energy than it is to become destructive. Yeah. But it's it's it cannot be the model for how people develop themselves i.e i'm going to go through a traumatic thing use that as fuel to become something and i think that's become an accepted narrative um 
probably way too much than what it's deserved. And what I would like to, what my understanding is, is, is that I was, uh, 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 I was in an environment where um, my dad wasn't present and it never became a problem until I was going to be a parent myself. Mm-hmm. And I was very much aware that all of my actions as a father were unintentional. They were an afterthought. They were, sorry, not unintentional. They were very intentional, sorry. Yeah. Um, and I had to consciously sit there and think at every point, am I doing the right thing by my children or by my wife? None of it was, oh, I saw my dad do that and he's a good dad, so I'll do that. And I think that's potentially what other women may have from mothers who would be present. Mm. Um, and so I'm aware of how I've got here. Um, but I think the the trauma that I've faced, and, I, and I, look, absenteeism is a form of trauma. It just wasn't destructive. It, it, it didn't break me, Yeah. Um, which is testament to probably myself and my mum and my wider surroundings as to why not totally because it does break a lot of people for a little Mm. bit at least and then yeah it breaks it breaks many people and and i think it's a very difficult thing to unpick what would have happened to you if your father was around versus not around Mm. or if he was different and i suppose all i can do is actively listen to or understand who i am today um and live by a new code which isn't tainted by where I came from Mm -hmm. like I respect what my mum had to go through to get us here and I respect that my that that time for any black person Mm -hmm. um it's probably the kindest thing I can say to him is that nobody in in no black person in the night in the 70s and 80s was prospering extremely well Mm -hmm. and so um I don't know his full journey but I know that he brought me into this world and that is something to be thankful for Mm -hmm. everything from there um is a consequence of good and bad um him actually not being there mm-hmm. so so take us back to your nine-year-old self yeah and when your dad came back so i remember there was like a maybe a conversation about i remember that i remember the variables of there was other children that he wanted us to meet my mom was super open and uh, accepting of him wanting to see us she told us that it may not go the way you want it to so bear that in mind and i think that's her protecting us and I remember he arrived, he said, may, may have come like a week earlier, said he wants to see us. The following weekend he turned up and I'm, I feel like that that period of time was like, I was bubbling, I was over the moon. I was like, I'm gonna meet my dad, it's exciting. And then I met him for the first time and then um, he took us out, had a really great day. I think it was in like Epping Forest, we were on canoes and it was a really nice, Very idyllic nice. Yeah. daddy, daddy, child, child day. Um, <laughs> daddy day. Cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the second time he met, he told us he was going to come back. He arrived um, a little bit late and then said, look, we can't do anything today. I don't have any money, but next time I do, I'll come back. And I, I remember being distraught because I just didn't care about I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to see you and talk to you. I think he may have spoke to us for like half an hour or so. Mm-hmm. And I think my mum knew at that point what that was. And she kind of just 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 protected us, really. She didn't say anything too, too damning or anything. She just protected us. Um, and then he never really came back. And I realised that when my drive was to make money, and I, I will I profess now, I'm, not, I'm far from a millionaire, but my, my drive to go from being in an estate on the verge of jail and crime to making a life and family for myself uh, and what money means, I feel could be connected to that statement. Mm-hmm. And until I identified it um, this year, I had always thought it was about, you know, we grew up very mod- moderate, modestly, um, but I think that statement told me that I need to make money for, the, it's quite emotional, I'm making myself um, tear up. Because I very rarely have said this out loud. I've said it to my wife, but I've never really um, spoken. Um, And I think, you know, that's a powerful memory to to have been fueling you for, you know, that's probably uh, 17 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think um, I remember it still quite vividly. I remember his car. Um, I remember almost his smell. I remember what he looked like. And I thought I could actually see myself in you in certain ways. Um, and it's a really powerful memory to have. But I also knew the darker side. And I saw glimpses of it when he introduced us to his partner and just the interaction. It wasn't loving. 
and it was very controlling and it was very sharp and short and I have elements of that in my communication now mm. um, and it horrified me it horrified me to identify the two things but I also it's interesting how you can spend so much time apart but still be interconnected in some way mm. yeah and it's like seeing um, I've heard that so much before with um, boys with their dads or yeah. men I should say with their dads mm. people coming on this podcast <laughs> hopefully <laughs> somewhat grown up but it's it's um, it's seeing features and mannerisms that mm. they were like but how do we sh features is more obvious but how do we share that same manner like yeah. how and there's that sort of nature nurture thing and it's yeah it's just there yeah and so when you s were met with his um, when he introduced you to his partner this yeah. was um, above the age of nine this is probably it. this is the the first time I saw him. I think the first time we went to see, we did all those. those mm, so maybe there maybe was more than two times. So there was maybe two times we met. I think one time we went to the pot, the idyllic thing. Yeah. Second time we went to go see the woman that he was with at the time. And I think he may have had three children with her, um, all similar ages. To, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, and and I just I think I remember watching their interaction mainly because I was like, why are you with this lady and not my mum? you're watching out for that but I also just was aware that maybe that was probably for the best because it didn't look like a thing I wanted to be around how interesting age nine that you could just pick up that energy straight away that you could see that that yeah. lack of love yeah and I think that comes to the emotional intelligence again my EQ is very high I sense shifts in rooms really quickly mm -hmm. and I'm aware when people aren't happy or when people are uh, withdrawing from spaces and I can it, I don't know why but there's a thing that tells me that's happening Intuition, yeah, yeah. Oh, amazing because you said in one of your podcasts, when I did meet him, he told me everything about himself that I needed to know in that short time. Yeah. And it was that story just there. Yeah, I, th I think I think all of those moments combined um, and what I know to be true of the interaction with my mum, I, I saw the trail. Mm. I saw it all. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I wonder how much of that story I've, I've internalised and made my story versus um, what actually happened. But I think the biggest thing is there wasn't much for me to um, digest or to or to build or to work with. Mm -hmm. If I was developing myself into a young man or a boy with challenges, I wasn't going to get what I needed from him. Right. And you were aware of this at this literally. Yeah. Wow. I have no idea why, but there, there was no answers. And yeah. and to be honest, subsequently, as I've, I've interacted with him very, in very short ways over the years, I might run into him because he still lives in Hackney. Right. Um, if I run into him. Again, you can just see there there was nothing there. Mm. Um, and I think when, you know, you start, you're with somebody at the age 15, 16, you're not with the actual person. Yeah. You're with the child version. And it's very easy to turn that into something that's not healthy because you didn't know who he really was. Well, he didn't know who he really was. Yeah. So. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He I didn't just even think, know who he was when he had babies. No, he had no idea. And I, and if I asked him, you know, why was happening, things were happening at that time, he probably would just blame somebody, which is what the archetype is of somebody who doesn't know themselves. And a teenager. Yes. So <laughs> I think for, for you know, for my mum, mainly now just out of not, not any necessity, but I really have a great relationship with my mum. Mm. There isn't anything... I'm missing from that relationship. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because we live in a, a, a dad's group and everybody challenges each other. People have challenged me on, you know, my father. Like, what is that? Like, you, that, there's something there, mom. I think there's something there. And, mm. and, you know, in every meditation I've ever done, in every piece of therapy, in all the coaching and the work I've done, he's never come up. Mm, interesting. And like, even now when he does come up, the questions that I have, I don't really have any questions. I don't, I, like, I'm not, I'm not sitting here thinking... I, if I knew that, that would help me in any way. Right. I, I would like to just know to be able to have a fluid conversation with you as to like what year that was and mm. what he did and didn't do. But I, it doesn't add um, any weight to who I am today or it hasn't shaped me in a very specific way. Yeah. I, I had a lot of love in my life, mm. a lot. It's amazing because actually um, I'm going back to uh, an ex-podcast, Jordan mm. Waller, and he said when he did meet his sperm egg, donor dad mm. um, he said he realised he was whole the whole time and he'd always mm. thought that he was lacking yeah. because I think of the societal norm of you need a nuclear family a mother a father and so he was like what is this sort of father figure that I'm supposedly lacking of yeah. and he felt it he felt an identity crisis and what's fascinating is hearing you say a similar thing whereby like you found your whole self on your own however mm. I don't know I can't tell you but subconsciously mm. you know this escapism as a teenager probably 
was a result of that kind of thing that was subconsciously lacking yes which you might not have felt it but it was there he he i thought i think that's why i think the legacy of it has played a role and at some point i drew i drew a line under all of those experiences because i realized that i what my my life isn't i'm not what's happened to me i am who i say i am mm. and when i when i moved with that understanding i stopped connecting the story of me growing up with who and how i acted today mm-hmm. and then when i said to when i say i have the um who i am and i say i'm going to do something or i say this is what i feel if i'm being honest and truthful at that moment that is it that that's my legacy that's my um path into the world is just by saying as close to the truth as i can mm-hmm. um and sticking to my words to everybody around me mm-hmm. um and i find more peace in that than the story narrative that drives me and connecting absenteeism of a man who absolutely gave birth to me or was a part of the birthing process um <laughs> just yeah. um uh, and then that that that's that's very important but the relationship between uh, parents and children has been missold mm-hmm. for a very long time and we've always been told that these people are you Mm-hmm. And you come from them, and they see you in them, and you, you know, and I, and I think those those type that type of ownership of children is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, my mum has been fantastic in allowing me to to grow into the world without her hovering over me with expectation. And not everybody has that freedom. And I think that has been the beautiful understanding um, in the last few years is that actually I am not my parents. I am Marvin Harrison, and I have paved the way in my life um sometimes through trauma sometimes through conscious decision making but ultimately i am responsible for me um and i find a lot more peace in that ownership than i have in this idea that there's a connection that will always mean i'm not full or i'm not whole also it's a taking responsibility for yourself it's that and i think responsibility actually brings a huge lot of peace and a huge lot of empowerment mm. even if it's responsibility of something you don't want to take responsibility of if you do there's something very freeing about it yeah so i want to just talk about how your idea of a man mm-hmm. and before we dwell on this because i don't want to go too much into it because there's so much i want to ask you mm. but in your recent episode what it is to be a man you mm. talk about so if anyone wants to listen more in depth about marvin yeah. speaking about this go to that episode on dope black dad's podcast but i find this fascinating because i heard reggie yates speak about it on fern cotton's happy place about his mm. dad and Sharmadine reed actually in my first episode spoke about it with her dad and the sort of lack of that they had where they found their fathers in different people who strangers so for example mm. either in books or from the TV mm. and you've quoted saying Alan from Eastenders, Uncle Phil mm. and then Will Smith they yeah. all left a DNA in you. Yeah. So m- my understanding is is that when you develop yourself as a man you do it you should do it intentionally you should design that with men that you respect and admire or people that are in- responsible for you respect and admire. Um and because I didn't have a many positive role mo- male role models I found myself really connecting to father figures and older men in on tv mm-hmm. and some of the really prominent ones i remember and i think some of the key things that i enjoyed is will smith in fresh prince always seemed to be relatively happy mm. even when he's stressed out because he's done something there was a happiness within there there was a comedy and a humor and i think a lot of my outlook is i take the positive outlook and i'm always joking around even in serious scenarios um i can't avoid the punchline it's a part of my <laughs> dna um and then even within like carlton and the respect for culture and art you know that was meant to to take the uh, to rib him but at the same time there's parts of it that i loved uncle phil being stern but still dancing around the house with his wife those are visions of marriage that i've always wanted and and one of the things that when i met my wife i was clear that i want a person that i can do that with I don't want someone it cannot be just based on sex it cannot just be based on a mission we need to be able to vibe in our own little frequency in our own little world and and I have that now and so that's you know a huge attribute to the things that I saw I look at Alan and he's staying power or from looking after children that aren't his 
Alan from EastEnders was a hero. I mean, he never gets talked about as a character, but he was a very good character, mm. even though he didn't get many lines, but he was a great character, um, you know, and he had Billy and he was looking after Bianca and he, yeah. he played a good role as a black man. I remember you saying even, you know, when his wife cheated on him, yeah. he, he stayed there, he was reliable, he turned up every day. Yeah. And that for me gave me slight kind of hair on end, which has just happened again, because it was what your dad didn't do. Yeah. And so yeah. he showed you a stable trustworthy reliable man yeah that you were like i want to be like that yeah you yeah. and you can get those values obviously seeing it every day and being drilled in is fantastic but also if you just have it and you see it and you understand it and mm. you can apply it to yourself the lessons mm. can also be learned through proxy so you know we was lucky to have those characters like desmond's being on like always kind of whining a little bit and cussing someone out but still working really hard looking after his family and he raised you know two amazing children um yeah. And I, I just think those visuals are really important, which is why t black people on TV is fundamentally a really important thing. Yeah, 100%. And good role models as well. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, because it is that, it goes back to that thing of being, because also I don't, I don't know, I don't think that someone, one parent, one person can provide all of those things. Mm. Maybe someone who's a superhuman can in some way, but actually in life it's probably just healthy to look at other it's that sort of um children should be raised by a tribe sort of yeah. idea yeah, yeah you look at lots of different people who can be different role models in different aspects of your life yeah because what one person is so difficult to put that pressure that they provide every single part yeah I, I think it's impossible and i think it also applies to your relationship so my wife can't be everything to me mm. um, and i think those ideas are usually quite either toxic or from a place of lack where you feel like as a parent i have to be everything to my children or to my partner they have to do everything with me and if not they don't love me enough mm. like those ideas are actually from a, a place of it's a wound that you're trying to cover up with someone's presence and i think that becomes a challenge and that happens very very often i with my son have accepted that i am not he is not me he is not my child he is a young person in the world that i am charged with guiding until he's responsible to do so himself mm. and then even then if he really wants to protest against me at a respectable age there's only this limited amount of access that I can do, but my job is to guide him in the healthiest practices possible, show him visions of himself in the future, and hopefully he will connect to one of those and and, and act in that way. Yeah. Right, so now I want to go, oh, there's just so much to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it's so annoying. I wish we had like four-hour-long podcasts. But um, now I want to go back to you, actually. And what I realised I never do yeah. is I never ask men about their relationships. I only ever ask women. <laughs> Because <laughs> you know what's probably happening. Yeah. I know. <laughs> but I also can relate to women and obviously the whole term daddy issues, how it's coined and yeah. how it's thrown around and whatever. And I um, I realise I never ask my male podcastees, mm -hmm. podcast guests, about their relationships. Yeah. And really interestingly, I heard in one of your episodes, mm -hmm. and now I know that actually an actual background to your father yeah. and that relationship that you had, um, that your parents had. But you were in an abusive relationship for a bit. Yes. And I want to talk about what, because yeah. I, I didn't know, obviously, that it was that your mother and your father had an abusive relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember thinking, I bet you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's where that came from. So I wanted to ask, in your earlier life, now you've got a very different sort of situation, obviously, with your wife. Yeah, yeah. What, how do you think that relationship with your father affected your relationships? So I think what, what, what that all came down to is my mum was very explicit about how to conduct yourself with women at all times. She was very clear. And thank God she was. Because if I had to rely on my friends at that point, I could have found myself in a very much worse scenario. My mum taught me the values of if a woman starts hitting you or is abusive or yelling at you, you walk away. No matter what, walk away. And it was imprinted in me. Um, but it's obviously harder when you do it within context. Because I remember the girlfriend that I was in an abusive relationship with she was a little bit older than I was and we had we had met and it was going very well but we had basically accelerated our relationship because I had to move out of the house and there was all these little things that were going on that I, basically I had to move out of the house and I went, I was, I was going, went to university she moved into my university house would stay there most days and then kind of like commute around um, and then I think just there were things going on with her very much so but it was very interesting only on reflection can I be aware that it was abusive relationship because at the time 
I was like, this is just a relationship. You're in it. And sometimes she gets angry and sometimes she may hit me <laughs> and sometimes she may yell at me and we may get into a pushing fight, but I know she loves me because, mm -hmm. you know, she's here and because, you know, I think you make a whole bunch of excuses. Um, and it's never a thing I would have considered calling that. It's never a thing I would have considered calling the police for. Um, it's only on hindsight as an adult would I look at that and think, actually, there was room there for that to be misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. There was a room there where potentially I could have reacted physically and caused damage, which that would have become my identity. If we role reversal there or gender reversal there, mm. then it it would be obvious to both parties that that was to be a relationship. And maybe because it was a woman hitting a man that you thought this isn't, do you know, maybe yeah. or not? Yeah, I don't know. No, no, I think it would have been, but I think ultimately it's, her, her ability to cause me damage is reduced because she's smaller than I am. Yeah. And so if I hit her with the force and the intent that potentially she did, it would have a different outcome. Yeah. And I'm aware of that and I, I won't make light of that. I think the challenge is, um, is, is being made aware that what is happening isn't normal. Mm -hmm. I think that's the hardest thing because when you find love, especially when you're young, it's your first overdrive like even the idea of someone allowing you to have sex with you is pretty fantastic at 18 years old you're like wow people let me do this this is like yeah. thank you so you almost don't want to ruin it you're just like i'm excited to let this happen um and you know you build a connection through you know me moving to university and us being together living together you're going through an experience together so it ended up probably pushing us further down the line and making it harder to pull away um but it's not easy to recognize in the moment. Um, and I'm somebody who knew, I knew that if these things happen, you do this. Mm. But still, it didn't mean to leave. It didn't mean that something's wrong. It just meant that sometimes she gets a little bit angry. And so I need to manage that. And, you know, we need to be mindful. And, um, you know, I was probably doing things, manipulating mentally that would encouraging that type of behavior in mm. some way. Like, you know, you can't justify physicality with what you do, but... You know, she she had a problem with me being so friendly and sociable and she hated it. And so she felt like that was a disrespectful thing to do or right. it was a sign of something going wrong. Uh, and so she would react and get riled up. You know, I can't psychoanalyze her in a way to fully understand what was going on, but it was definitely a testing time of my character. And again, just always being on just the right side of an understanding, mm -hmm. which is why I hold my mom in high esteem because every lesson I've had to actually employ in real life. That every all those things she said have come and saved me at a very critical point. Mm -hmm. It's like she knew the ten things to get kind of get in that would stick, <laughs> yeah. and she gave them to me, and they yeah. all were were used. It's amazing. God, that's amazing. Yeah, your mum sounds amazing. You will meet her one day, I'm yes, sure. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we don't have too long left, and there's okay. so much left that I want to talk about ideally, but. As I said earlier, Marvin has the most amazing podcast, the Dope Black Dads podcast, where there's so much covered about masculinity, toxic mas masculinity, I mean, gender, men, women, everything. So there's really, really a lot there. Because um, I wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to brush on so many things, including you becoming a father, but we've done a little I'll bit I'll try and that. keep my answer shorter, I'm sorry. No, 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 <laughs> it's my, I mean, ah, oh, it's my fault as well. Um, but I wanted to talk about, so because obviously this podcast looks at mm. success within fatherlessness. So mm. you started Date Black Dads. Yeah. And as we were saying, off camera mm. or off record, yeah. Yeah. we both have started something which rather than just like, you know, the relationship with our father or that absence, you know, mm. instilling a drive and ambition, a focus into something, whatever it is, and that becoming a success. Yeah we actually have started stuff which is directly because of that thing. You know, yeah. it literally mirrors the that thing rather, as well as it being a driving force. Yeah. So I want to talk about what, um, yeah, what's what brought you to actually reach out and start Dope Black Dads. Yeah, so I, I started it from a, a bad father's day, but I think what, what that really connects to is being as close to your truth as possible. Mm. And I found that whenever I did things with my imagination and my mind, I would it would run out of steam because I was I wasn't I wasn't it wasn't doing anything for me it was something that I thought about that I was trying to bring success to and the second I did something that was based on my own personality my own shame my own wounds 
it, it, it grew faster, better, stronger than I ever could have bothered to imagine. I've had designs of this career in advertising for many years and I'm at a senior level now um, in an amazing business. Yeah, because can I actually quickly interrupt you? Considering also what mm. your background and where you came from in yeah. many ways, you were a huge success yeah. in the job that you did, you do in advertising. Yes. But yeah. Dope Black Dads, I think it's going to be global. <laughs> but the, I think that's, that's the thing is where I was always consciously aware of me being good at advertising so i would do i would do that i'll be creative i'll be a strategist um, and i enjoyed it but this i've had other th events that i've done outside of a job before um that have become huge but they never made me happy this one makes me happy mm. it kind of it fulfills me i feel like i'm doing um a, a work of a higher power than i am when i'm just working and i love my job my job is like i feel like i wake up think what i think apply that to people's business problems and it gets like appreciated mm -hmm. that's like extremely powerful to me that's not something that i would i'm very much used to so my job and how dot black does intersects is just me being myself in both of those rooms and i very i don't feel like i'm filtering myself in either one of those spaces um, and i found more success in that than i have anything that I've tried to do consciously to be successful. Okay, so we sadly have to wrap up, but there's so much left on my thing. Can we do a quick fire round then? Okay, right, 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 right. Your daughter and your son, when they were born, mm. with your son, you got very emotional. With your daughter, you looked at yourself in the mirror and you thought, <laughs> right, yeah. you got to be practical now. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. found that difference very interesting. Is there yeah. a very quick summary you can say with what that difference was? Yes, with my son, I saw myself and I saw myself as a boy and what I wanted for me growing up to have not gone through the things that I went through. And with my daughter, I saw every woman that I probably have betrayed the trust of um, and every hardship of every woman that I've known and thought, absolutely, I need to prepare you mentally and physically to overcome these challenges because it's not me. I know what I went through when I was going through it. And so I'm excited for my son to go through them with my help. Mm -hmm. With my daughter, I don't really know what those things are. I don't know what it's like to be catcalled, to be um, uh, to have misogynistic views imposed against you, to have a uh, patriarchal society pushed against you. I don't know those things. Oh, fascinating. So that... I'm doing it from a logical point of view, like, all right, one of one equals two. So if ma this man is yeah. sexist, he would do this to you. But that may not be true. No, but that is actually so fascinating. Mm. I'm not going to say why now because there's not enough time. But <laughs> another thing is, so what I found also so interesting about your podcast, this is um, an episode you did on BBC Sounds. This is actually more referring about black dads, but I think this applies to all. Yeah. That rather than blame, what you do is you look at the historical context and the personal story behind what is this stereotype of an absent black father. Yes. But then also fatherlessness is, as also is mentioned in, in that episode, yeah. is a crisis in itself. It's not just black dads, yeah. which is this sort of media stereotype. Yeah. But I just loved the way that you, rather than having, you know, you've suffered from that yourself. Mm. That's been a trauma for yourself. But instead of pointing that blame and pointing that finger, you've understood that in order to grow, in order to change, which mm. is what this podcast is about as well. It's not about dad shaming or, or man mm. shaming. It's literally to educate, to empathize, to understand, mm. to hear like both sides of the story. And that's what promotes change. Yeah. 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 And it's that kind of don't build a wall, you know, build, build understanding. Yes. Kind of yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, I'm, look, I'm a huge fan of um, the processes that it takes to look inside yourself and come to an understanding. So I look for any form of information that will allow me to do that. Um, and then within that journey, I found some really good understandings. And one of them being is that, you know, the story of the black man in Britain is very, very specific. Mm -hmm. And it isn't about I'm black, so I leave my children. There is a very specific type of psychosis that you go through as a black man where you may be oppressed at every single level and every interaction you have with mm -hmm. every form of government in, in institution. Uh, so education, um, your own home because of what's happening with your own parents in the world, um, and how they then treat you. Then you go to work, what happens? You're in higher education, then what happens? Um, and then your career, trying to get um, a loan for your, a mortgage for your house. You know, we over-index in being rejected um, if your, our names are, are, are ethnically um, are, are ethnic. Um, there are so many things that face us in a in a in a structural way, mm -hmm. and so many pokes that you may receive from the police, from school, from your workplace, um, and and just ultimately you may break. Mm -hmm. And people don't count how many interactions you have, which are directly designed around what you look like mm -hmm. and the in the culture around your name. So that 
Yeah. They don't understand why we break. So they just think, yeah, but I wouldn't break under this. You've got a job and you've got a wife and kids. I have that. I didn't break. So you must be unwell right. or you must be absent or you must be, you know, um, um, a bad father. And I think those labels are unhealthy. The same way we don't use the word racist because it's unhelp- unhelpful. Mm-hmm. You've never, ever called someone a racist and then be like, oh, yeah, I am. Sorry, I didn't realise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone rejects it. <laughs> Everyone says, no, I'm not. I believed it. And yeah, it's the yeah, truth. they'll and do the- something that they don't even realise is <laughs> yeah. racist. Yeah, so yeah. Just, uh, I, I just think those labels are unhelpful and I'm, I'm more about the progression than I am about c- catching somebody and holding them to rights. So, um, I'm always more open than I am about, you know, just nailing someone for being something. Yeah. What you've also shown, I think, to a lot of listeners is that toxic cycle of fatherlessness Mm. that's so easily taken. Mm. You can break? Yes, I I, I think you can break it. And I think the first thing you need to do is accept that your, your father is just a man by his first name. And I think we often attach a meaning to the the concept of fatherhood. And then that meaning then informs how you live your life and how your outlook and what your value is to the world. And I think that is the biggest problem because once you're, even your own parents can can manipulate you. Yeah. And and they will manipulate you in some way, shape or form. They do it when you're young, when they pretend that, you know, your cartoon is the TV's broken because they want to watch cartoon. It's constant manipulation. Um, and at some point you have to evolve out of that cycle and step away and become the man that you are supposed to be before you can be of any use to any woman that you choose to um, be with. It, it, it's just the Sweet. number one, 1.0. And so... I discovered that while I was already married. So my poor wife had to endure several years of me being a child in in her presence um, (laughs) before I was able to consciously be aware of it. But it still is a part of me. It's just now I'm aware of it and I can apologize and nip it into the bud. I'm not going to drive our marriage into the abyss on the idea that, you know, um, because I'm behaving like a child. I'm Mm. aware that I am a man on my own too. My mum is there for love and resource, but she's not the barometer for my completeness. Mm. I also think, I know that you've done psychotherapy, haven't you? Yeah. And it's that sort of stepping out of yourself and kind of, I think that super, is that if you have an understanding of yourself, yeah. which often people think they do, but they don't because it's just always stayed in their own mind yes. and their own understanding, rather than putting it out somewhere mm. and then being able to dissect it. And that I think allows you to be able to step away from yourself and see either your traumas or your triggers or your vulnerabilities or your weaknesses and then you can build a much stronger version yeah i'm a a huge fan i think if you have a major block in your adult life you would either go see a counselor and a counselor is really good just to talk you through what you have to say being heard that's Mm. very good Mm. psychotherapist is the next level up they'll start talking about how you then um, structure your thinking and your understanding to come to a conclusion Mm -hmm. if you need to have a conclusion and a massive trauma event has happened that could be really useful but there's also things like landmark forum which i've i've been to as well which is more of a coaching process so they allow you to tell your story and they coach you through what your story is and how that has shaped you and then what to do with it and i found that I've done all three of those things. I found them incredibly useful mm. um, in just wrapping up some of my thinking. You could, I mean, like even hearing your podcast, if you hadn't had those things, I'd be like, he's an actual genius. <laughs> <laughs> because the fact that you have, it's like makes more sense because you speak so, you're so emotionally in tune, I mm. think with yourself and with other people mm. that it would almost be mad if you hadn't had like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'd be like, what the hell? He is a genius, which you are anyway, but. Thank you. Okay, so we do have to wrap up now because I know that we have gone over time. So, my last question mm-hmm. that I ask everyone. Yes. And this is going back to you. Mm-hmm. If your dad was listening to this episode right now, what would you want to say to him? I would say you're free from my judgment. And thank you for bringing me to this world. And thank you for leaving my mum alone. And um, please find peace in yourself and represent yourself with that peace whenever you're ready. I, I don't think the door is closed. I think it's, uh, uh, would you ever consider doing the work, Dad? And if you were, go do the work. And I would definitely always have a conversation with you. I've spoken to him a few times since. And uh, I, I my, my goal is, is that one day he will be able to explain himself to me in a sober, conscious way. Um, and whatever the story is, he's able just to say it and be honest. Could free himself. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Marvin Harrison. Thank You've you been an me. absolute joy. And I really stress for everyone to now subscribe, rate and review <laughs> Dope Black Dad's podcast because it is magic. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>
Thank you so much for listening to my episode with the most wonderful Marvin Harrison. Look out for this man because one day he is going to be a household name with the Dope Black Dads and I cannot stress enough to listen to the Dope Black Dads podcast. It is for everyone. It is not just for black dads. It is literally for everyone. There are so many life lessons in there. I couldn't thank Marvin more for coming and sharing some of his story because he so often speaks about so many other people's stories and so much else that branches off from dads and masculinity and so to learn a bit more about him the man behind the dope black dads and the man behind the voice on the podcast i think was invaluable so thank you so much marvin you were wonderful and i hope you all enjoyed the episode if you like daddy issues podcast i would be so grateful if you could rate review and subscribe to us on itunes or spotify as it helps other people find us and get daddy issues to as many eyes and ears as possible You can find the links to these on www.thedaddyissuespodcast.com. A special thanks goes out to Warren at Wargie Productions, who is the master of both sound and music. Ben and Aaron at Interface, who have made my website and do all the graphic design. And thank you guys for listening. I love hearing your thoughts, so don't hesitate to get in touch. If there's anything at all that's affected or resonated with you and you'd like to get some support or follow up on anything that's been said, previous guest and psychotherapist Julia Samuel has an incredible website, www.griefworks.co.uk. Once again, thank you so much and I hope you enjoyed the episode.